you go against a system and then are told, no, this is your issue, what are you going to do then? And there, there is a lot to lose. This is The Unsuitable Podcast, where I interview single Christians in order to broaden the conversation on singleness and expand our collective imagination of what is possible for the single life. I'm Mary B. Seyfried, a communicator, creator, and coach passionate about filling the gap between what the church offers and what single Christians need. Each episode this season, we're going to be talking about being single and in the church, the good, the bad, and the awkward. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow, rate, and review so you don't miss new episodes. Y'all aren't ready for today's episode. You're going to hear from Dr. Katie Gadini. Dr. Gadini is a sociologist at the Social Research Institute, University College London, and a research associate at the University of Johannesburg Department of Sociology. From 2022 to 2026, she is a United Kingdom Research and Innovation Research Fellow at Stanford University and UCL. Katie holds master's degrees from Boston College and the London School of Economics and a PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge. Her debut book, The Struggle to Stay, is based on over four years of in-depth ethnographic research with single evangelical women in the U.S. and the U.K. Her current research investigates Christianity and politics in the U.S. Her writing has been published in Religion and Politics, LA Review of Books, The Conversation, and more. In this episode, you'll hear Katie and I talk about how the Billy Graham rule affects single women, what the church gets right about community, our thoughts on changing the church from the inside, and the specific value single women bring to the church. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about our Patreon community. It's no secret that many singles feel like outsiders in the church. That's why we've created a Patreon community. For a small monthly fee, you can get access to bonus content, plus a community where your voice and presence are valued. Tiers start at just $5 a month. Sign up at patreon.com slash unsuitable. All right, now let's dive into today's episode. Hi, Katie. Welcome. Hi, Mary B. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, thanks for being here. I'm so excited for our conversation. I was saying before we started recording that I just just finished your book today, so it's super fresh in my mind. So for this book, you were doing a lot of interviews, you were talking to a lot of people. I would love to hear like from your time interviewing, like what was your favorite question to ask someone? Yeah, that's a great question. So I tended to ask similar questions to every woman I met just to keep it consistent. I altered it bits here and there, depending on a woman's life story or what was important to her. But the most instructive or interesting question that tended to come up was at the very end when we finished the interview. And I would say to women, is there anything else you want to add? And that's something that you often put in with qualitative interviews just to kind of tick the boxes. What I didn't expect is the range of responses I would get and that there would be sometimes very personal, deep information that would be shared when I asked that. It was like women had been saving something up to share and just needed that final permission at the very end. Uh, So I got some of the best answers Mm. from asking that at the end, right when I was packing up my stuff, getting ready to go and asking them, is there anything else I should know or that you want to add? And then I'd have to sit back down because uh, often the most interesting and juicy stuff would come out. That's interesting. I don't know if this is an actual thing in medicine, but I saw it on an episode of House. 
they called it the like doorknob question where the doctors like had their whole consultation Mm -hmm. and they're about to like, like have their hand on the doorknob and they basically say, is there anything else or whatever? And that's when the person is like, Oh, by the way, you know, my toes falling off or, you know, whatever it is. So I wonder like what it is about humanity that we kind of save up the best bits for the last moment. Yeah. And I think also just having an undirected question where you just say, is there anything Mm. you want to add? And someone's free to just speak from what they think is important. That's not necessarily directed by the interviewer. Just you never know what response you're going to get. And the responses tended to be really important and interesting. Once you stop the recorder and start packing up your stuff, you don't know what's going to come out. (laughs) I really like that. We're going to talk a little bit more about your book. But first, I would love to hear from you you know, you're someone who grew up very much in the evangelical church, but you're no longer part of it. I'm curious to hear if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your experience as a single woman when you were part of the church versus how you've experienced your singleness since leaving the church. I think the pressure for women to find a spouse, to get married, to have kids exists in general in our culture. I think it's exacerbated and it's a lot more intense inside evangelical and Christian spaces. I'll say Christian as a larger umbrella term. So I do think that, you know, not being involved in the church for myself meant that I I didn't feel as much pressure, but that pressure still exists, right? It's in Mm -hmm. movies, it's in TV shows, it's anytime you speak to a relative and they're asking if you found anyone or who you're dating. So I want to be really clear about that, that it's not just happening in the church, but that it is more intense in the church and that there's, I found at least there's more spaces to meet other single women outside of the church and women Mm -hmm. who are content in their singleness or happy in it and not viewing it as a huge problem that needed to be fixed, which I often felt in the church. It was just about, I've got to find someone and I've got to find someone quick And that sense of pressure lessened outside of the church, I'd say. I'd imagine that in the church, that added pressure is cultural because there's so much leadership opportunities happen more for people who are married. And, you know, there's just like that's kind of the the designated path for people. But then also things like uh, purity culture and and chastity and celibacy and all of that kind of add to that pressure. So Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's coming from a lot of different angles. Whereas maybe outside the church, there's a little more examples of different paths and different options. I think examples is key because I I do think outside of Christian spaces, you will find, or I found a lot of role models or other women who were older, Mm -hmm. who were single and living really full lives, whether that was in the workplace or friends I would meet or through hobbies. Whereas I didn't see a lot of those examples in the church. And I know that's a really big problem. And that's something that women spoke to me about a lot is I don't see a version of myself in leadership. I don't see myself represented anywhere. And being single is seen as a problem or something that needs to be fixed. And we know that women tend to marry younger within those who are regular churchgoers, who are regularly involved in evangelicalism. And I think that disparity is really felt when you're in a big city like New York or London, where... Mm people tend to marry later. And so that pressure is a little bit more diluted outside of Christian spaces. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, even just the difference between being single in the South, the Southeastern United States versus being single in New York and both in Christian spaces is like a slightly different experience. Whereas it's still here, like in Christian spaces here, it's still a, a pressure and still a thing. But there's definitely a lot more single people at my church than mm. almost any other church that I have been to. But relative to the broader New York culture, I would say it's it's probably like a lot more focused on marriage. Yeah. And then after marriage, you know, there's the pressure that comes with having kids and mm. starting that. So it is something that I think doesn't necessarily end. And this is something else I heard from women is, you know, first it's the pressure to find someone, then it's the pressure to get married, and then it's to have kids, and then it's to be a stay-at-home mom. And yeah. every step of the way, the experience that I had and that women have reflected back is that there's a lack of options available, that there's one Mm. path that you need to follow. And if you're moving outside of that path, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Your research was focused on, on women, but just the way that men experience that pressure is probably very different from how women experience it. Even just in the perception of a single woman versus a single man in a church space. Yeah. Anecdotally, you know, I do have some single male friends that are Christian and are involved in the church. And while they do feel that pressure as well, they're very much seen as kind of um, a prize to be won, you know, this, Mm. even if they're in their 40s or or a bit older, whereas a woman of that age who's single is very much pitied or seen as what's wrong with her. I don't think the same perception lands on men that are single. And, and older than mid-30s. Yeah, especially with like the idea that men mature later in life or like emotionally mature later. Yeah. And then also the like biological clock thing as well, I would imagine would be a contributing factor to why men are, are kind of not in that same situation. Yeah. Where like biological procreation is like such an important thing for yeah. Christians. Right, right. So it's that sense of they still have time or it's the George Clooney effect of, oh, they're an older, attractive bachelor who's Christian and and really a great catch versus are they a spinster? What's wrong with them? Those are labels that women often felt when they were the same age and single. Yeah, for sure. And also, I will say that it would probably be seen as more appropriate, right? Since um, something you talk about in the book is how even spaces that are quote unquote egalitarian in practice, it's actually pretty much predominantly male leadership, right? Mm-hmm. So a single man, it would be seen as a an appropriate thing for a pastor to like hang out with him one-on-one or whatever. Yeah. But with a single woman, that would be a very different perception wise. It would be a very different thing. So yeah. there's that like lack of feeling included, feeling known, that can just drive that wedge even further apart and drive that perception of otherness or what's wrong with you or feeling sorry for them or, or whatever. Yeah. And I, you know, this Billy Graham rule of um, opposite sex, not being able to be alone and in the way that that impacts women to reaching leadership roles yeah. is, is really negative actually. And it means that a lot of women don't have mentors. They don't have representation. They never get the roles that men would get because there is this block around mixed gender connections and, and meetings. 
And that also in turn tends to over-sexualize women and portray them as being this temptress or something that needs to be protected against up to a certain age. And then there's a certain age where women, single women, are not seen as overly sexualized Mm. temptations anymore and are seen as like the older grandmotherly figure of the church who's more, Mm. you know, can help out. But neither role, again, necessarily reflects the desires, ambitions, and agency of women in their life stage. Okay, I can see the logic behind the avoidance, right? With uh, the, you know, Me Too, with all of the, the abuse coming out and all of that stuff. Like, you can see the logic of avoidance, but to me, that doesn't actually that doesn't actually solve the problem. It maybe even just Mm -hmm. creates more fear and more separation as opposed to like really facing the problem head on and saying, okay, like what maybe systemically or what, like what really is going on here Mm -hmm. as opposed to reducing it to, well, men and women just can't hang out together ever at all. That's part of a larger uh, approach to sexuality that I think can be really unhealthy in the church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, curbing sexual misconduct and preventing it isn't a matter of keeping different genders apart. We That doesn't work. We've seen that. You know, it's about a more holistic approach to sexuality and to gender and to gender relationships and to behavior. And And I think it's, it's a much more systemic, larger issue than just keep them out of the same room because that doesn't work in terms of preventing misconduct. We've seen that. And if anything, it has a lot of really negative consequences. Yeah, definitely. I would like to shift a little bit now. And I mean, we've mentioned your book so many times, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more specifically. Your book is called The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church. In your own words, could you just give people an idea of what it's it's about? Yeah, so it's a mix of research that I did about five years of research with single evangelical women, primarily in London and New York. And then it's my own story of growing up in a conservative form of evangelicalism and leaving the church in my 20s. And a big reason for that was because of being single and being a woman and feeling there wasn't space for me the way that I was and and have been created. Uh, So I mix my own story with the stories of these women, and I focus on four particular women's stories that I tracked over several years who represent the majority of women that I met. And they had different approaches to their involvement in the church and different starting points and different ending points, but they're kind of four examples of single women you might meet in a evangelical church today. Yeah. One thing I thought that was really interesting about your approach was that it was so story driven. Like there was Mm -hmm. obviously a great deal of research behind it. And and that was very clear in that. But the way that you structured it, that it really was pretty linear in a lot of ways, as far as like how you tracked with these women's stories and then weaving Mm -hmm. in your own story with that, I thought was an interesting approach that like it made it very approachable. Mm. I think for for something that was quite a bit of research, right? It mm. was it was a ton of work that you that you put into it. And sometimes when I think about a book that is more research driven, I don't always automatically think it's going to be story driven or or approachable. 
I was really clear about wanting to write in this particular way, wanting it to be character driven, wanting it to be narrative uh, writing style and for the stories to be and the women themselves to be the front runner of the book rather than data and numbers and historical literature on this topic primarily because I wanted it to be an enjoyable book to read and I wanted it to be enjoyable for non-academic audiences. I wanted to translate the research that I've done into an accessible and enjoyable form of reading and to reach women primarily who are single, who are involved in the church or questioning or out of the church, but feel these frustrations that I often encountered with women I met over the course of research. Yeah. Did you... um get any pushback on that when you were going through the process? I did. I had pushback at various junctures. So initially, you know, from academics would say, you know, just take your PhD dissertation and translate it to a book and move on. It'll be so much easier. And I definitely picked the harder route of kind of rewriting the whole thing and starting from scratch. And then I had pushback when the manuscript was complete from reviewers and from other academics who thought it wasn't academic enough and it needed to be fronted Mm -hmm. by the research or by data rather than the story approach. And what helped me was, again, just being really clear from the beginning, this is the story I want to tell and this is how I want to tell it. And I'm not going to compromise on that. Mm -hmm. And keeping in mind what's going to be best for your reader, right? That's a Mm -hmm. huge thing. When you're thinking about a book, obviously you, apart from anything, you want it to be what the reader needs and wants. And it sounds like that was a big part of your decision as well. Yeah, I spent about two months in Italy, in Tuscany, before I even started writing, just brainstorming and getting really clear about who is my reader, what do they look like? What do they like to read? What do they, what's their pain point? What is their life like? And how do I craft a book that reaches them? And and I'm so grateful now that I had those two months to really just think and prepare because that helped me really stay on track and stay true to the mission of the book rather than be swayed by all the different voices that came about over the following four years. Hmm. Yes. I'm sure that there was no shortage of opinions on (laughs) what your book should be and how it should be written. I haven't gone the traditional publishing route, but even in my like processes, that's definitely been a thing. The more people you ask, the more opinions you're going to get on that. So being true to your reader is so important. You mentioned a little bit about your target audience being like single evangelical women, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more about your target audience and maybe what you hope they'll take away from the book or what you hope they'll experience or get out of the book. I spoke to a friend yesterday. In fact, this is a friend I've known for many years who grew up in evangelical spaces. We went to evangelical college together and she thanked me for the book. And she said, you know, it was, I felt like you took my experience and made sense of it for me and helped me Mm -hmm. understand what that experience that I've gone through is like. You put it into words in ways that I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And for me, hearing that was like, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to 
make sense of a lot of women's experiences and also for them to feel less alone, to read these stories and to say, I see myself in that or I've experienced something similar. It's not just me. And there's a sense of camaraderie or a sense of companionship that could hopefully come through reading that. So that's a kind of roundabout way of saying that's who I was hoping to reach in the way that I was hoping to reach them. And anytime I get an email from someone who says that that's happened, I am so grateful because that was the goal. Yeah. A lot of what I noticed in the book was that it seemed like there was at least language wise leadership saying, oh, no, we need to like, oh, yeah, we need to get more women in leadership or we need to do this. We need to do that. So your approach of helping women find words for their experience, mm-hmm. I've, I feel is empowering mm-hmm. in its own way. Um, and gives people permission to maybe let go of some guilt and walk away from the church if they need to, or remind them of of why they're still in the church. Yeah. And I think women that attend churches that theologically don't support women in leadership, that's a very different battle. That's a very different mm. conversation. I myself have have spent years in churches like that, where for me, the aim was understanding scripture and arguing on that sort of level. Mm-hmm. But the churches that the women I met went to do endorse women in leadership on a theological level, yet they still don't have many women in leadership and especially not single women. So that's a different story. And that's a different type of battle, if you want to use that word. And so I think kind of fleshing that out or putting it in plain language and saying, what do you do when you're in a church community that says they value you, that says that you can theologically come up to leadership roles, and yet it's still not happening and you still feel undervalued? Hmm. What does that look like? Which is a different conversation than the experience I had for most of my life and that a lot of women who are in more traditional complementarian churches face. Yeah. Yeah, because in a complementarian space, right, there's a an out there argument that's explicit, whereas in the other situation, there's so much of it that can be pretty subtle. Mm-hmm. And as far as calling that out, women yeah. are not necessarily in a position where they'll be heard or like believed or whatever the case may be. And it's confusing. It's and this is something that sort of confusion or disillusionment that I heard all the time from women of like, but they're saying this and yet I'm feeling this. And these are two Mm. very distinct phenomena happening side by side. And I don't, I can't make sense of it. Am I going crazy? Are they not being genuine? What is the problem here? And why isn't this shifting? Is the problem me? And I'm really interested in those kind of experiences rather than the experience of my church doesn't allow women in leadership. They view women in this particular way theologically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of women fighting those battles and engaging with that. And I totally admire that. But my interest has been on on the the other forms of subtle, more subtle, more insidious Mm -hmm. marginalization that single women face. Yeah. There's almost like a gaslighty kind of feel to it, right? And I wonder if that's something that women maybe, obviously we're being super general here, but a lot of women just in the way we're socialized would be more likely to turn the lens back on ourselves and be like, okay, well, this is like everyone around me saying that everyone everything's fine. 
So I must be the problem here. And so I'm just going to like sit on the outskirts. Yeah. And I especially noticed this with more working class women and women of color Mm. is Mm. this sense of, is there racism here? Is there classism here? What is going on? Is it me? Is it my personality? Should I just fade into the background? And so often, yes, women would kind of turn against themselves and view mm-hmm. it as their problem because it doesn't make sense. And yeah. that would cause withdrawal from the center of church life. And for some, it caused leaving because yeah. this confusing phenomenon was happening where they felt very much on the outskirts and yet everything they were hearing was in support of them. Yeah. Well, especially because this is a part of Christian culture where, you know, people can kind of put on a front maybe, or like it seems to be working so well for so many people. Yeah. And it's just people who fit into a very particular life experience for the most part from what you wrote in your book. And so I would imagine that it would be easier to turn on yourself in some ways than yeah. question the entire institution and the the way that the institution is set up. For someone especially who does not come from a place where their voice has been valued, where they have experienced oppression and marginalization, right? The the gumption maybe required to come to that conclusion would be a little harder to access maybe. Yeah. And you know that there's a lot to lose if you go against it. If you go against a system and then are told, no, this is your issue. What are you going to do then? And there, there is a lot to lose. Losing that community or losing that connection with the church and taking that challenge on, knowing that if you can't make any headway, you're, you're kind of left with the choice. Are you going to stick with it now that you've seen these true colors or are you going to leave? And and that's a very painful and daunting choice to have to make. We'll get back to the conversation in just a minute. First, I want to tell you about a cool offer for singles. Growing up, you might have gotten the impression that marriage was inevitable. If you grew up in the church, you might have even heard that marriage is the best way to become a grown-up Christian. But you don't want to wait around for a spouse. You want deep relationships. You want to feel valued in your community. You want to live your life. The problem is that there aren't a ton of models on how to get there. You're tired of feeling like you have to figure it out alone. I'm Mary B. Seyfried, a singles coach committed to helping you cultivate a full, meaningful life as you are where you are. I've been helping single Christians make the most of their right now lives for the past four years, and it's simply the best. To get started, head to marybesafrit.com coaching. Fill out the interest form, then schedule your free 60-minute intro call. I can't wait to hear from you. All right, now back to the episode. Speaking of community, you talk a lot about the importance of community in evangelicalism, and that's something that keeps a lot of women in the church. I'd be interested to hear you talk about your findings on that, like expound upon that a little bit, and then um, talk about like how you've experienced community outside of the church. This is one of the things that I think the church does really well. And I think in general, we can say religion, the way it functions in society is by fostering and building that community. And I experienced that in my own life of having left church going and not found, you know, I say in my book, I haven't found a suitable replacement. And it's true. I have great communities of friends. I have great communities of colleagues and, and hobbies and sports that I do. But the intimacy and the closeness 
that is fostered in the church is unparalleled. And Mm -hmm. I think especially, you know, if you move to a new city or you're at a difficult spot in your life, you're experiencing transition, their community can provide something that other areas of society just simply doesn't and can't provide. Mm -hmm. And so it's by reflecting on my own experience with this loss and with this longing for community that I really was able to tap into how important community is for Christian women. Yeah. And what it gives them and how, you know, that really can't be underestimated. And I meet a lot of people that are very critical of religion and Christianity. I myself am critical oftentimes, but I also recognize the tremendous value that the Christian community brings to people's lives and mm-hmm. it can't be underestimated. Yeah. You said that Christian community facilitates this like deep closeness in a very unique way. Can you speak to maybe why you think that might be? What is it about this type of community that that fosters that? I think there's a few different reasons. So at least at the churches that I researched, they're pretty demanding in terms of your participation. So it's not something where participants or churchgoers would just go on a Sunday and then leave. It was often Mm. go on a Sunday and volunteer beforehand. And then afterwards go to the pub or go out for lunch with people from church. And then there's a midweek service and then there's a Bible study or small group that meets once a week. And then there's a volunteering Mm. on a Friday night with this ministry. So, you know, just in terms of time spent, that itself really fosters intimacy because you're seeing these people a lot. And then there's the actual content of these encounters, which often involve prayer or spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues or laying hands on one another, emotional worship services, talking to each other really at a deep level about what's going on in your life. Again, that is intimacy building activities that do not often happen outside of church spaces. So I think both in terms of frequency and content combined together, and then you have other little ways that intimacy is forged, such as accountability or such as praying for one another, confession, um, which all work together to create community, sustain community, and and to make it a, a somewhat intense environment, You know, which has blessings and curses that come along mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, something that strikes me is that what you're describing, right, there's the time spent, which is huge in and of itself, but it's really just creating space, right? Like by nature of asking for prayer requests or sharing or whatever, but like it's really creating that space and that organization and that structure that facilitates that kind of sharing where, you know, I think about my friendships that are with people who are not part of the church and I'm quite close with them, but you know, it's, you have to like kind of make your own opportunities to do that. And sometimes that's situational when you're going through a hard time or sometimes it's, you know, but you really have to make a choice to facilitate that, which it's scary to do and it's hard to do. And so having the ready-made space maybe takes away some of that intimidation Yeah. And having those practices ritualized and ingrained in Mm. church culture. You know, I'm thinking of, I mentioned in the book at one point, how one of the research participants that I became close with, I was going through a difficult time and she would text me and check in and just say, how are you doing? I've been thinking of you. I'm praying for you. And this was someone I had 
just met and I've met her in a research setting, you know, not necessarily as a, a new friend. And she was more attuned to my pain and what I was going through than friends I'd had for years hmm. who were non, non-Christian friends who didn't check in at all. And it was just served as a really stark reminder of, you know, that is a practice that is promoted, that's encouraged within mm-hmm. church spaces. And that has a real benefit and a an, an community building aspect to it when it's lived out and practiced every day. Yeah, that strikes me as as accurate. Even just thinking about right how powerful it is to have those kinds of things as habits and developing those habits can be very challenging, especially when there isn't the the structure, the practices, the the cultural yeah. acceptance of that because. I don't know how it is in London, but it, but here in America, it's, you know, so, so, so individualized and so insulated. Our, our like households are so insulated. So the church is definitely not immune from that, like individualistic kind of culture, but it does strike me as at least getting people in the habit of being a little more outward facing. And that's a huge reason why church community is so attractive to people, especially in in cities like New York and London that are highly individualized, fractured, isolated. People are doing their own thing. They're focused on themselves. It's, you know, the height of capitalism and urbanism. And that creates in people a longing for connection. And, you know, the sociologist Bauman talks about that. And and that's something I think, you know, if you've lived in a big city, you could really experience. And the church community counters that. And it provides this closeness and this connection with people that is missing in these highly isolated spaces. And it's something that I think humans really need and crave. Yeah, definitely. I would like to talk a little bit as we're kind of talking about what keeps women in the church. Something that comes up in your book is this idea of changing the church from the inside. Was this something that you experienced single women expressing a lot? Yes, it was. And it was something that I myself remember wanting to do or feeling called to do for many Mm -hmm. years in the church is I, you know, I have that kind of fighting spirit. I've had that since I was young and I really wanted to make the church more inclusive to women. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I felt called to do for so many years. And that's something that I've met a lot of women who also feel called to that or feel that that is kind of their purpose is to change it and change it from the inside. And I have a lot of respect for women that choose to do that because it is hard. It is hard sticking in there in an environment that you love, but is also wounds you at times. And Mm. to have the endurance and the fortitude and the strength to keep going with that calling when you get knocked down over many, many years. So yeah, my own journey, you know, led me to work to change the church from the outside, but I have deep respect for women who are working to change it from the inside. Yeah, I mean, the church I go to is complementarian and I am not at all, but I like have a great community there, all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, you know, I have zero expectation that this church is going to like if they change that, they would have to break from the denomination and like all sorts of stuff, right? So I have no no pretense that I am gonna be the one to like make that shift or convince the church to make that shift because it's such a 
there's so much working against a woman who is trying to do that, or even a small group of women who are trying to do that. There's like so many years of of organizational inertia and you have these like massive institutions that are just moving in a particular direction and have a, such a set way of doing things that, you know, you describe in your book, kind of the, the results of some of the women who had that attitude and, Mm. and left the church after kind of getting disillusioned and tired and all of that. Yeah. That's where I think we need waves of people to pick up the mantle and carry on and, and I trace towards the end of the book some of the foremothers, the women that came before these evangelical mm. women that came before myself that have been fighting for equality on numerous fronts, whether it's gender equality, racial equality, and you know they had their time, and then another group or took over, and then another group, and sometimes they're short-lived waves. And, and but I really like to think of it as these successive efforts that build on each other because yeah for for it to all be on one person as a life's work is is a yeah. lot to ask yeah having that like sense of history or ancestry and being able to see kind of the big picture i would imagine is is huge for saying okay i can't like this is probably not going to be fixed in my lifetime whatever that right. even means but i can move it one step down the road. I can help to make it a little bit better in these specific ways. Yeah. Or I can work just within my own church or my own community to bring attention to some of these issues or to shine light on it. And maybe that's my work. So I think, you know, women having to really be clear about what they can and can't do and knowing when they have to tap out. Yeah. Something I'm really passionate about is like really trying to articulate the specific value that single women have in in the church, in the body of Christ. And as someone who studied this, I would be interested to hear you articulate from your experience, from your studies, you know, what that what the place is for single women in the church. I saw that single women bring a lot of new ideas, energy, and initiative to the church. I think because they don't have the focus of a partner or children at that point of their lives, there seems to be a really productive and ripe season for starting things, contributing to things, initiating projects, activities, groups, whether that's in terms of time or whether that's in terms of kind of mental energy that they're able to devote. But it's it's a really fertile time, I think, for people, it, it, women especially, as being in that single space and, mm-hmm. and creating community and contributing to community in a sense of newness that doesn't mm-hmm. always happen when women are older and married and or have kids and have competing demands on their times so I really, yeah, I do want to encourage women to, if they have ideas or initiatives or projects they want to get off the ground, to really pursue them. And I saw that time and time again with women, whether it was starting a photography group or starting a new women's support mentorship group, uh, they were just so full of ideas and so full of mm. projects and initiatives. And they had the energy and the focus for it. And it was so exciting when they were able to carry those out. Yeah, totally. Totally agree with that, which makes it super interesting that the roles are the way that they are, right? That so many people in leadership, so many people like trying to run things are married and are parents 
and yeah. have all of these competing demands. It's a little counterintuitive when you put it in those terms because that kind of creative divergent thinking requires quite a bit of bandwidth. Yeah. And perhaps that's one of the reasons that married men are are more likely to be in leadership because you know, theoretically they have their wives doing a lot of the the background work that facilitates that space. And so Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially women who are who are married and or have kids, they have a lot of demands on their time, if, especially yeah. if they're working outside of the home oh, yeah, and sure. they're doing a lot of domestic duties, like you said, if they have a more traditional setup and their husbands are in a church role. So I think there's a unique gift and timing that single women have to focus on community and they really need it. And so I think they should be encouraged in spearheading, leading, initiating activities and projects in the church, including leadership roles, if that's their belief system. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that there's like a different kind of urgency for creating those kinds of things for people Mm -hmm. who are single, because it's it's really coming, I mean, I think in my experience, it, it seems to come from a real place of felt need or Definitely. like really acutely seeing a need yeah. and really like having that passion and drive to do something about it. There's, yeah, there's an urgency to it that is maybe different than for a person who is who is not single. Yeah. And I think although everyone needs community, as you're saying, there may be a a deeper need for someone who is single, who lives in a big city, who really wants that connection with other people. And so their involvement in church life is crucial to meet their needs, but also to meet the needs of others like them who are in Mm -hmm. that same stage of life. Yeah. And the like all of that kind of stuff, that community building is ultimately beneficial for everyone because we Mm -hmm. all need different kinds of relationships, right? You can't put, which I think is something that people are becoming aware of more and more. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just paying attention to those kinds of pieces more and more, but just the importance of, or maybe coming to realize like, oh, we put a lot of pressure on this one relationship to be everything. And that's maybe not the best. So how do we learn to prioritize friendship? It's interesting because like single people have been have been doing that. And so it's a real opportunity, yeah. I think, to to listen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, friendships in all its multiple forms, intergenerational friendships, mm. that's something that you often wouldn't encounter outside of church spaces that can be a really meaningful type of connection that church provides mm. or uh, co- relationships with people that are really different from you, racial demographics, class demographics, work in different fields. Again, if we encourage those types of connections, that again, adds to the strength of the church because those connections don't always happen outside of the church in everyday life. Yeah, definitely. Well, Katie, it's been a delight to talk to you. I have just a couple more baby questions for you. One is how can we support you? Where can we follow you on the internet and all of that jazz? I'm on social media, begrudgingly. <laughs> I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And I do hope that more women, single women especially, will read my book um, and that will find resonance for them. And if you do read it, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message. Let me know how it landed with you, what your thoughts are. And if you're not a single woman, do read the book as well because there's a whole population you need to learn more about. Yes, for sure. 
last question. Will you tell me one thing that's hard right now and one thing that's great? So I'd say there are two, one in the same, actually. I've just moved from London to California, and I've been abroad for 13 years. So I am having a bit of a reverse culture shock going on now back in the States, which I did not anticipate. So that's been hard. And at the same time, you know, moving here, I'm getting more time with my family. I've got sunshine for, you know, the first time in almost a decade. And there are a lot of things reconnecting with old friends that I've missed out on. Um, So I'd say moving here has been really hard. And also it's been really good. And I'm navigating the kind of duality of that experience. Mm, I love that. Katie, thank you so much for being here. It's been lovely. Thanks, Mary B. Have you ever wanted to start your own podcast? Podcasting is a great way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout makes it easy to get started. If you follow the link in the show notes, you can get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And we can help support the show at the same time. You can follow Katie on Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Katie Gadini. Her website is katiegadini.com. You can buy The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church from all major book retailers. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review. To stay up to date on all things unsuitable, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at maryb.safrit. Or subscribe to my weekly newsletter at marybsafret.com. Unsuitable is produced by Studio Aplum. Sound engineering is by me, Mary B. Safret. And the theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That's all for now. Catch you on the flippity flop. <laughs>